Oh, like, because when I shot, I expected to make it. So, like, I don't shoot kind of this. You are Locked On Raptors, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to episode number 961, I think, of Locked On Raptors for Monday, June the 7th. I'm your host, Sean Woodley of RaptorsHQ.com. You can find me on Twitter, as always, at WoodleySean. You can find the show at Locked On Raptors. And of course, uh, please make sure to find the podcast on all of your favorite podcast providers as well. It's very appreciated when you leave us a rating and a review. It, it helps us with the algorithms and all that stuff. So thanks in advance. Tell a friend as well. It's always a good way to spread the word about the podcast too. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks as always for your listenership and your support. Uh, today's show is brought to you by Locker Room. Download the app and join me this week. Uh, we've missed it the last couple weeks just for scheduling reasons, but hopefully this Friday we will have a Locker Room with myself and today's guest and Katie Heindel perhaps. Uh, locker Room, changing the way we talk about Sports. All right. On today's show, we are continuing on with our uh, season from hell in review. We'll be done it by the end of this week. We only have two sort of main players to talk about. We'll dig into the front office. We'll dig into the, uh, the, the 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 coaching staff as well, and then we'll probably do like a quick hitter episode on all the other bench guys we haven't talked about. Um, but for now, we have a big player to talk about, and that is Pascal Siakam, who is sort of the last star core player I mean we'll get to Malachi Flynn tomorrow as well but obviously Pascal has a bit of a higher status within the team and uh joining me to talk about Pascal Siakam as teased before is today's guest it's Vivek Jacob what's going on buddy not much as uh, we discussed just before we hit that record button I am somewhat distracted watching the French <laughs> Open right now Novak Djokovic is down two sets to love to someone who looks like he's gonna be uh, the next one, Lorenzo Musetti. So Ooh. Uh, it's very spicy, very spicy. Speaking of spicy, mm-hmm. Pascal Siakam, Vivek Jacob, you're a professional broadcaster. I'm choosing to believe that was on purpose. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about <laughs> Pascal's season today. Uh, just a bit of a refresher on, on what he did before we get into our sort of big takeaways from his season. We'll also dive into um, the sort of developmental arc of the year and, and where he's at compared to where he was at the start of the season that we'll talk about next year and where he fits in. Uh, but just to refresh what happened this year with Pascal Siakam, 56 games played, just under 36 minutes a game, 21.4 points. 7.2 boards, 4.5 assists, nice uptick in his playmaking, 1.1 steals, 0.7 blocks. He shot uh, 51% on twos. He shot 29.7% on threes, a big drop-off from his last couple years where he was right around league average. And, uh, you know, it, it was a lesser statistical season, but as I think we're going to get into today, there was a lot to be sort of gleaned in terms of positivity from Pascal's statistical year in his fifth season in the NBA. Vivek Jacob, we'll start this off with you, and the question we're starting all of these season from hell in review episodes with, what was your biggest takeaway from watching Pascal Siakam play for the Toronto Raptors this season? He is clearly uh, a number two or number three option, and I think for me, I looked at the season before the 2019-20 season as an information gathering season for him saying, mm-hmm. hey, this is these are the challenges that come with being a number one guy. Let's see you take on the challenge. 
uh, understand what it's going to be like to have scouting reports targeting you, double teams thrown at you, dealing with extra physicality. And I think over the course of this season, we have seen that he is someone who is obviously an ETB incredible as a number three option. He'd be a very good number two option. And, you know, unless the Raptors get that number one guy in the off season, some way, somehow, uh, I think there's actually a window for him to ascend to somewhere between a two and a one because of what we saw in the latter half of the season. And so I think the way he was able to elevate his game, we saw his scoring really get back into it. Uh, and then the playmaking, we, you mentioned that uptick that he's had. I think that's the biggest sign uh, for him to uh, be a ceiling raiser in this role. I think it's one thing to be a ceiling raiser in, in the role that he had on the championship team. It's another one to be it in this role. And I think mm-hmm. I've seen enough to believe that it's there. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think my takeaway from the year, very similar to yours, is that this was just a very clarifying season. I, I think we kind of got a lot of answers to questions we've had about Pascal Siakam. And look, not all those answers suggest that he's this sort of franchise changer that you're building a championship team around, and that's okay. Like, I, I think what's been clarified is that he's clearly worth his contract. He's clearly, I think, you know, I would even pencil him in as like a surefire number two on a title level team just considering the current context of the NBA where, it, it, you know, it, it's kind of, it's not the super team era really right now outside of the Nets, obviously, and who knows how stable long-term that's going to last. But, you know, for the most part, it's a league of, you know, two-star combos. And I think if you pair the right star with him, you're probably looking at title contention, especially when you consider the rest of the supporting cast the Raptors offer around. You know, if they were this sort of top-heavy team with no depth, then maybe you'd be kind of overextending him as the number two, kind of filling in all these kinds of holes. But considering the personnel the Raptors have on hand, considering the prospects they're developing, the fact that they're adding a first-round pick this year, I think you absolutely can go forward with him as the idea, with the idea in mind that he is going to be your number two once you get that superstar. And I know that there's this sort of inclination to be like, well, he's not a number one, so like, what's even the point? You know, you're kind of, I think, not really living in reality if that's the way you're operating. And it's not like you move on from your number two guy because he's in place before your number one. And maybe they never get the number one. That's very, very on the table. Like, they may not be able to pull off a trade or some sort of signing coup to bring in a guy to be a number one ahead of Pascal Siakam. And if that doesn't happen in the next few years, then you probably reevaluate things and look at things from there. But for now, I think they're in a totally fine spot. And because of Siakam, they have an infrastructure that can support a superstar if they're able to acquire one in any number of ways. And I don't know if I would have said that at the start of the year about him after what we saw in the bubble, but particularly because, you know, the even the back part of last season, we saw a bit of a sort of decrease in his efficiency and his sort of prolific scoring numbers and things like that. But the thing that really kind of unlocks it all for me this year is the playmaking. And that is the single most important development, I think, for Pascal. And the thing that really kind of gives me a lot of optimism about what he's going to be going forward. I mean, playmaking is how you leverage talent into sort of impact across the floor. And I think the way he came along this season, the way he cut down on the turnovers, the way he... It's not just like he's doing basic passing stuff, right? Like he's passing on the move. He's passing out of the post. He's doing stuff from in the pick and roll. Like he's got a lot in his bag playmaking wise and because he's added that to his repertoire 
you know, I have a feeling the scoring is going to come back up. I, I don't think the three-point shot is a 29% three-point shot. I think this was a weird season. And the whole package is going to be pretty damn enticing once, you know, you would hopefully get some stability going into next season where you're not going to be playing on the road and things will be somewhat normal. Um, are you with me in thinking the playmaking is sort of the biggest key to unlocking him? And if not, is there something else that um, happened this year that kind of gives you that optimism that and sort of, again, clarifies that he's that number two-ish option? So I actually, so I do agree, like the playmaking is really, really important in terms of him being a great number two option, great number three option, whatever he ends up slotting into in the next iteration of the next great Raptors team. Uh, I do want to get into a bit of a conversation about the three point shot. Uh, Sure. Because for me, I mentioned earlier about, you know, being a ceiling raiser in the role that he had on the championship team is, is different. Uh, than being a ceiling raiser in the role that he has now. And, and part of that is, th- is the way I view the three-point shot as well. And so mm-hmm. uh, on that championship team, he could be a guy that was you know, taking those three-point looks from the corner. Uh, the looks are coming primarily off ball, that type of thing, uh, in terms of the outside shot. Now, in this role, they're primarily going to come uh, with the ball in his hands, pulling up from above the break. And I think that's a completely different challenge. And so in that regard... I need to see a lot more to believe in him as a three-point shooter in that role. So you look at uh, both the 2019-20 season uh, and the 2020-21 season, he's shot a combined 30% on pull-ups. Right. And so I think uh, that is something that needs to continue to develop. I think that is something that is an important part uh, of his game that really needs to level up. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, you know, I would say I'm optimistic about that just because, you know, that's a pretty good starting point for a 6'9 forward who wasn't really a shooter for, you know, the first couple of years of his career. You know, he, he did have some of the pull-up stuff. Obviously, he was at the start of the 2019-20 season. He was bombing from everywhere, and that was probably an outlier and an anomaly. But, you know, I think there's still a lot to work with there. I did like this season when, you know, his threes weren't falling, how he kind of changed his shot profile and, and really kind of was just like, all right, I guess I'm scored at the rim now because I can't hit yeah. my threes. And he, you know, he saw his three point uh, per game attempts go down from 6.1 to 4.4, kind of redistributing those shots around. Um, and so he's found little workarounds. You're right though. I think, yeah, the pull up three, if there is going to be an avenue to him being a number one option, that's clearly it probably like the playmaking is already there. And if just above the break a, in general, right? Exactly. Yeah, it, totally. I, I think, you know, that we've seen that with how many players, not just forwards, but like Kyle Lowry became Kyle Lowry when he started hitting pull-up threes. Steph Curry became Steph Curry because he can hit pull-up threes. It's such a it's kind of a cheat code of a shot. And yeah, if there's going to be a limitation on that for him around 30%, then yeah, that's probably not ideal. And that's going to cap his sort of his potential stardom. But, um, you know, I think there's enough there to work with. And, you know, I still think just the upheaval of the last couple of years, it really kind of has to be a nightmare for development. And speaking of like how, you know, development is never linear. I think the last couple of years in particular are kind of a perfect example of why you can't count on that because things are, you know, disrupted by pandemics and bubbles and short breaks and things like that. Um, you know, so yeah, I'm reasonably optimistic there. He like has changed his shot profile so drastically in the last couple of years that I think it's probably taken some time to kind of adjust. And I think this year he wasn't getting any help necessarily because, you know, the, the supporting cast wasn't amazing. And a lot of his shots were not, you know, wide open, uncontested, you know, looks, right? It was all sort of he had to work for everything. 
you know, there were games where teams were throwing like three guys at his at him because there was just nothing else on the floor to worry about. So I'm hoping that like with a more sort of fully fledged roster next year and a sort of just again sort of return to normalcy, we'll see him kind of bounce back a little bit from deep. But you're right, that is a, a pretty pivotal skill in terms of what his overall ceiling is going to be. We're going to get into some more developmental stuff in just a second here. Uh, But first, I want to tell you about our friends over at Indeed, who are the greatest hiring company in the world. They really are what you need if you are looking for a short list of quality candidates for any position you're hiring for. You can get your quality short list of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster, only pay for the candidates that meet the must-have qualifications, and schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting it with and hiring the right talent faster and easy. You can choose from more than 130 skills tests and then add your must-have requirements so that you only pay for applications that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit. Upgrade your job posted at Indeed.com slash locked, L-O-C-K-E-D. That's a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash locked. That's Indeed.com slash locked. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. We're going to keep talking about Pascal Siakam and his developmental curve in just one second here. But first, a reminder that the NBA's Road to the Finals here on the Lockdown Podcast Network is brought to you by Michelob Ultra. It's only worth it if you enjoy it at 2.6 carbs and 95 calories. We can all enjoy and all enjoy the games a little bit more this season. Go and check out the wonderful host of shows covering all sorts of playoff teams currently still going in the NBA. You got Suns Nuggets game one tonight. Go listen to Lockdown Suns and Lockdown Nuggets to get ready on the Road to the Finals with Michelob Ultra. All right, Vivek. Uh, Pascal Siakam, we kind of dug into the development con- conversation already, but we can continue it going forward here. Um, you know, in terms of other things, you know, the playmaking is the big thing, the three-point shot's one thing as well. Was there anything else this year that Pascal did that kind of piqued your interest or maybe it, it kind of going the other way, things that he kind of lost that maybe you're a little bit concerned about that you'd like him to kind of regain, hopefully in a normal season? So I think you hit on something important in terms of getting back to going to the basket. And I thought it was almost the best thing in the world that happened for him that the outside shot just completely wasn't going for him during that early stretch of the season. And he's like, okay, I need to find a way to contribute to this team. And it was like, I'm good. I need to get back to my roots. I'm going to get to the basket. That's the only way this is going to happen. And so obviously the finishing isn't at the level uh, that we've seen in the past. And so I think that's the area for development for him as well. I think, you know, Nick Nurse talked about how when you go to the rim, you there needs to be this sort of force of will. Mm-hmm. And there's times where Pascal, it's like he always wants to finish around the defender. And so mm-hmm. he will make that adjustment in real time to get the shot off when I think he's got he's got to have a bit more just, hey, I'm going to go right through you. Whatever happens, happens like. If the shot gets blocked, the shot gets blocked. But, you know, I think there's occasions. I think the one moment that does stand out to me is that uh, Timberwolves uh, buzzer beater, where I think I was maybe more on the other side of the fence, where I think some people sort of just looked at it and said, oh, this is, you know, just as unlucky as the misses against Portland and Golden State. And I kind of looked at it. I was like, man, you you really got to take it harder than that. Um, Right. And it was... 
I forget who it was that contested at the rim, but it, it wasn't a strong. I think it was Jaden McDaniels who was yeah, destroying yeah, him that entire game. <laughs> yeah, and and it was it it wasn't that strong a contest, and he mm-hmm. still tried to, you know, finish around him, and I thought that complicated things. And I think those are the types of finishes where I just like to see him, as Nurse said, have that force of will and, and just go right at him. Yeah, that's a good point. His free throw rate this year was up from last year, which is nice, 31.3, which is, you know, fine. It's less than what he was at at 2018-19. That's kind of the theme across a lot of his sort of shooting metrics is he, you know, was not as good as 2018-19 when obviously he was in a much easier sort of um, opportunistic role, but he was significantly up in a lot of areas from 2019-20, which I think is kind of viewed as his best season where, you know, obviously made all NBA, even though that spot should have gone to Kyle Lowry somehow. Uh, (laughs) Not mad, still not mad about that. Um, But you know, like the shooting metrics, I think we saw like a positive bounce back in a lot of areas this year. You know, again, the free throw rate, he was up in his free throw percentage just slightly, which is nice. He's now over 80%. It feels like he's the worst 80% free throw shooter in the world sometimes because he misses (laughs) them in kind of timely spots, but that might just be nitpicking and looking for areas to be upset with. Um, Sort of looking at his, you know, shot chart and where he was scoring from, uh, you know, up across the entire board. Uh, except, you know, down a little bit in terms of his inside three feet, but still 69% inside three feet. It's not so bad. Uh, he was up about 6% in his three to 10 foot range, which has kind of always been his bread and butter range. His, you know, 42.4% this season up from 38.2. That's not nothing to sneeze at. He was at 474 in his uh, breakout season in 18-19. He was up from 10 to 16 feet, uh, almost 10%. Same 11% from 16 to three point range. You know, there's lots of positive you know, growth and incremental growth in terms of a lot of these areas that, you know, again, it's never maybe going to bounce back to where it was in 2018-19 just because he was not the primary focus of of defenses that year. But still, in terms of him kind of adjusting to the role of being a number one, I think those are all pretty promising signs and the going to the basket kind of is the the starting point for all of that. Um, You mentioned the clutch thing, and this was a story throughout the entire season. I guess four, five, six potentially missed game winners or game-tying shots for Pascal throughout the season. Um, I kind of all year took the sort of side of this just feels like bad luck in a lot of cases. Some cases, obviously, like the Timberwolves one, you could point to maybe a lack of aggression or whatever it might be. But I have a hard time sort of looking at Pascal Siakam as some sort of crunch time choker, especially after in 2019-20, he was the backbone of like the second most efficient crunch time offense in the NBA, kind of working that pick and roll with Kyle Lowry, either as the ball handler or the screener, and scoring every time down the floor in crunch time. That didn't happen this season, obviously. Do you think the 2019-20 numbers in the clutch are kind of the anomaly here? You know, we've seen him obviously go off in finals games and things like that. I don't think it's some sort of like shrinking from the moment thing with Pascal or anything like that, but... Is there something in the way he's approaching his offense in crunch time that let him down this past season that you're concerned about going forward? Or do you think this will end up being the kind of outlier year? I hope this ends up being the outlier year. I think there were, you know, I think the majority of this season got to his head a little bit. And I think Mm -hmm. we saw those little plays like the, the double dribble against the Knicks. And we saw a couple of those where the indecision really hurt him and so Mm -hmm. again i would say at the start of the season like you know the the shots against portland and golden state like that i look at it i'm just like okay the dude is unlucky that that goes in and out um 
but there's other moments where I thought he could have been more decisive. Um, and I think that's all part of learning and understanding. And some of it has to be put down to, you know, situations where the Raptors did so much to get back in games. You know, so many situations where, uh, you know, they've had to try different lineups out. I don't know if they, you know, ever had like, yeah, this is, you know, we have our core four in terms of who we rely on, but mm-hmm. who is that other guy going to be? What, what, how does that change the roles? That type of thing. And so I think that that plays a little bit of a factor in it. But yeah, I, I think the main part of it is the decisiveness, which I think he will learn through experience. And he's talked about how, you know, hey, this is all new to me. This is all stuff that I'm trying to figure out on the fly. And you know, when you're sort of in the sports business, entertainment business, it's it's there for everyone to watch. And I think, you know, I, I think the pieces, all the tools are there for him to be an effective mm-hmm. clutch player. I think you, you highlighted the improvement in the mid-range. That's something that's important. Um, I think the fact that players can sag off him with, you know, not really trusting that three-point shot just yet, uh, that is going to be important. Uh, in the future, but the playmaking, as we've talked about already, I think that is the biggest thing in terms of closing out opponents, having the threat of your own scoring, which I think we saw in the latter stages of the season, uh, mm-hmm. that itself, I think is going to level up his, uh, clutch Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a big part of this year was the lack of any sort of stable closing time lineup and the fact that, you know, the big backbone of last year's crunch time success was the Lowry Siakam pick and roll with like shooting all around and Marcus all, you know, kind of moving dudes around. And they just didn't have that this season. Like I was talking about, you know, so often we would see games where, you know, Pascal would have like a meager scoring line and it was because, oh, he's sharing the floor with Stanley Johnson and DeAndre Bembry and Malachi Flynn for large stretches and teams are just collapsing down, sitting three dudes his way and hoping he can pass out of it, which to his credit, he often did quite successfully just to the effect of, you know, bricked threes from Stanley Johnson. Um, and so I, I do think that plays into the crunch time struggles this season, the lack of any sort of familiarity and reliable lineups. I think, just anecdotally speaking, I think they went away from the crunch time pick and roll with uh, Siakam and Lowry far too much. I, I think they, um, you know, they got away from what worked so well last season. And, you know, I'll be calling for more Siakam-Lowry pick and roll for the rest of my days. Uh, if Kyle Lowry sticks around, it's a pretty effective play, as it turns out. And it works so well, kind of inverted as well, because of Lowry's ability as a screener and the fact that you don't want him getting the ball in the short roll or anything like that to cause havoc. It's uh, it's such an effective play that we just didn't see as much this year in crunch time. And, you know, again, lots of factors at play for that. The lack of space, the fact that they were playing traditional bigs who could not space the floor at all for a large stretch of the season. Um, you know, it was just kind of a weird environment for Pascal to exist in. I think the fact that he got all those very good looks in close game scenarios is pretty promising. And I'm going to bet on, you know, at least half of those ones that rim- rimmed out against Portland and Golden State and stuff going down throughout the future. Like, it's just, it's just a lot of averages. Um, so I'm not terribly worried about the crunch time stuff, especially if they kind of have a, a more talented, deeper roster kind of around him to maybe play off of a little bit. And you have to rely on him a little bit less because, man, they relied on him a lot when the chips were down because he really, in a lot of cases, was their only way to sort of creating an effective offense. Um, 
we're going to continue on. We're going to dive into the future of Pascal Siakam, what he looks like on next year's team. Will he be on next year's team? I think it's pretty obvious he will, but I guess there's always a possibility out there. Uh, we'll get to that in one second here. But first, I want to tell you about our friends over at Built Bar who are making the best tasting protein bars in the world. They are so good. And I can tell you, I've been recently working out more. I've been going for bike rides and stuff. And I love a Built Bar before I go for a bike ride. It gives me the protein I need to like build muscle. I guess that's how it works. I'm not really a, a, you know, a person who understands how the human body uh, sort of functions, but but I'm told the protein is good for you when you're working out. And also, it's a way to give you some energy and fuel without weighing it down with a heavy breakfast or anything like that. Uh, my favorite flavor, I think, is mint brownie right now. There's sort of nine staple flavors, but they also have uh, wonderful limited time flavors to pop up from time to time as well, including grasshopper cookie, which is just like a thin mint cookie from Girl Guides. It's amazing. Highly recommend. Uh, most flavors have 17 grams of protein, just 130 calories, only 4 grams of sugar, and just 4 grams of net carbs. Order today. Get that raspberry, mint brownie, whatever you like. Get a mix box for all I care, uh, and you can decide what flavor you like the most. Go to BuiltBar.com, use the promo code LOCKED15, L-O-C-K-E-D-1-5, and get 15% off your first order. That's the promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. Today's show is also brought to you by our friends over at BetOnline.ag. You've got uh, lots of things to bet on right now when it comes to sports action. You've got the ongoing MLB season. You can bet on Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to win the AL MVP. You're probably going to get terrible odds on that because he's going to win it. But still, if you want to bet on that, you can. Uh, also, you've got the NBA and NHL playoffs going on. There's lots of chaos happening in the NBA playoffs. you got new series starting up. Why not throw some money down on the Suns or Nuggets, for example, as that series gets going here on Monday night. Before the next pitch or tip-off or face-off, whatever it might be, to begin the sporting event of your choosing, go to Bet Online on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news, sign-up bonuses, and contest info. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore as this is your chance to get into the game as teams prep for their runs to the playoffs. Head to the website or use your mobile device and sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts, and be sure to use the promo code LOCKEDON, all one word, to get that 50% welcome bonus. All right, Vivek, let's round this thing out and take a look at the future of Pascal Siakam and the Toronto Raptors. He's under contract, of course, for the next three years. I believe his final year is a player option. Uh, that could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, you know, there, this is an interesting summer, as we've kind of talked about. This is a bit of a, a, bit of a clarifying season where we kind of realize, okay, the peak of this team is probably going to be if Pascal Siakam is the second best player. There's lots of things to consider there. There's also the fact that in terms of trade assets the Raptors might have, Pascal's probably near the top of the board in terms of guys to go fetch a superstar with, considering the size of his contract and you know being able to sell a team on a youthful guy who's made All-NBA and all that stuff. Um, I guess, what percentage chance would you give? Let me start with this. This is maybe a bit of a curveball for how I was gonna, uh, planning, uh, planning on approaching this, but... If I was to give you sort of a percentage and you were sort of betting the over-under um, as sort of like the, okay, that's like the right place to set that line, um, what are the odds you think Pascal Siakam is not on the 2021-2022 Raptors? Not, I, I would probably say somewhere between 10 and 15%. Mm-hmm. Because the way I view it is, who are the players you would trade him for? It'd be... You know, it'll be a package that, that gets you Bradley Beal or Damian Lillard or, you know, that caliber of player. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can recall during the season people talking about Julius Randle this and Julius Randle that. And, well, what did Julius Randle look like in the playoffs? <laughs> uh, how sure are you about that trade now? Um, mm-hmm. 
so uh, you know things like that i think you know the grass can be greener so i i've always been against trading him for that level of player but if it's a tier one superstar if it's a package that gets you the tier one superstar then i'm absolutely for it but uh yeah if you have a, a player that is extremely capable of our number two role i think you hang on to him un- unless it gets you on a, a legit number one mm-hmm. and that's the problem though is that any sort of hypothesizing a number one being added to this team it really only kind of excites me if that number one is paired with pascal siakam because <laughs> he's just such a perfect building block to pair with a great star right like i I made this point over the weekend and this is not going to happen maybe we can discuss the low likelihood of it happening but like lillard for example if he were available on the trade market you know i think the appeal of trading for lillard is that you have in-house two defenders in pascal siakam and og ananobi who are kind of the defenders dame's been looking for his entire career and has never had and if you trade one of them to get him are you kind of setting yourself up to be Portland all over again? Like, I think that's a real sort of conversation. And so if I'm sort of looking at moves to improve the team, I hate to say it, but I think the guy I most look to trade is Fred, just because, you know, the the OG Siakam fit and the sort of building block that those guys provide is kind of necessary to have contention with it, whatever the next superstar is that you bring in. Like, you can't bring in a superstar and have the infrastructure not set up for that star to succeed. And I'm just thinking about like a Dame with uh, OG and Pascal on on his flanks, and that's like pretty damn exciting. But it, it just it becomes a little bit less exciting if it's Dame plus Fred plus OG plus whatever sort of void at the power forward spot. It's a uh, it's a difficult sort of needle to thread. And so yeah, I think it's far more likely. I would put it at like 95 percent that he's back next season. I would say that it's going to take a sort of strange turn of events. Maybe some team flames out disastrously in the second round here or something and someone you know, pops available, but that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And so, yeah, I think the, the plan is you go forward, you, you sort of look to reestablish sort of legitimacy and playoff contention next season and then hope that you can strike when the iron's hot when another star comes along. And I guess, you know, the... I don't, yeah, like, is there even a star out there that you could acquire without Pascal? Like, that's that's the difficult part of it all. So I, I just, I can't really see it. Um, in terms of his contract, we, we've talked about this a little bit before, but I, I just want to sort of have it on the record as we review his season. Um, this was his first year under his new contract, and every time he missed one of those clutch time shots we were talking about, the, call, the calls would, you know, echo through the streets of Toronto that he's not a max player, that he's not worth it. Um you know, the, the, obviously the contract comes into the conversation when you're talking about trades and things like that as well and his value as a trade piece. Uh, in terms of his contract value, you know, do you view him as like a positive asset, a neutral asset, a negative asset? Like, do you view that contract as an albatross? I think I know where you're going to go with this one, but we should probably talk about the contract after year one of Max life with Pascal Siakam. Yeah, I think it's overall somewhere in that neutral to positive range. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's quite a neutral. I don't think it's a full, like, I think, what is it? Four years, 136, if I'm not mistaken. And so if I had to say what's ideal, you know, I'd probably get down to that 120 range, but one, mm-hmm. 125, and I'd be like, yeah, that's that's absolutely good value. Um, so exactly, right? You kind of just uh, picking at straws there with that one. So yeah, I think it's a good contract to have for sure. And, you know, getting into that Fred versus Pascal conversation, it'd be interesting to see what the league views in that that regard. Mm-hmm. Because 
when you're thinking about a ceiling guy, when you're thinking about uh, someone like Pascal Siakam who can defend multiple wing positions, and we see how valuable that is, uh, especially over this past, uh, you know, decade, I would say, in terms of that having that value, over Fred Van Vliet, who I think in his role now, there are new challenges that present themselves. We saw some of it in that Celtic series. And so it'd be an interesting conversation to see, you know, where people view those two players. And I would imagine people would rather have Siakam than Van Vliet mm-hmm. because of uh, what the position offers. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, I, I think it'd be, I think just because of the public profile of Fred, it'd be interesting to see what it actually is. Yeah, it's a, uh... That's an interesting one for sure, and we'll probably grapple with that as we go forward here in the offseason, because we're going to have all sorts of offseason machinations to talk about. I was going to get into like the, oh, should they trade the pick to try to get Dame or something like that, but that's for another time, and after we figure out <laughs> uh, what the the pick looks like, um, I don't think the Blazers are trading Dame is the thing, um, as much as it's uh, fun to think about. Uh, any other sort of parting shots on Pascal here? I, you know, I'm with you. I think the contract is... It skews positive value to neutral value. Like, if you were to trade him, I think you could get good stuff back, no doubt. Um, I don't think it's an Albatross contract, and I will sort of repeat myself for the 700th and hopefully last time. He's a max player, period. And if you fancy a guy as a number two or even a number three on a championship-level team, you're talking about a max player. There's this sort of false equivalence between being a max player and thus having to be like a number one championship-driving type of guy. That's not how it works. There's like 50 max players in the NBA under the current CBA. And yes, not all max players are made different or are made the same. Some are albatrosses, <clears throat> Andrew Wiggins, but some, like Pascal Siakam, who it drives winning when he's on the floor. The Raptors were like seven or eight points better per 100 possessions with him on the floor this season. Like he is responsible for success. He playmakes, he defends at an all-world level as well, which I thought was kind of an unheralded part of his season. I thought his defense this year was as good as it's been. Um, You know, he was great in the bubble as well, which I think gets slept on too, as people sort of point to how bad he was offensively, but his defense was tremendous in that series. Um, But with all of that, yeah, it's it's a positive contract. He's the kind of guy who... Even when his offense is not going, you have to have him on the floor because of his defensive contributions and because he kind of makes everything tick when the Raptors are at their best defensively. Like having him on the team is the reason why they can play their insane, you know, recovery style of defense. And maybe they want to change that up a little bit and make things a little bit more simple. But Pascal kind of is the agent that allows you to play that crazy ass style and, you know, make corner shooters see ghosts and stuff like that, too. So, yeah, all of the things Pascal does are max player things. Is he Kawhi Leonard? No, but comparing him to Kawhi Leonard is stupid. And if you're still doing that, I would hope that this season kind of clarified for you that there are multitudes to this. There can be layers of max players, and Pascal Siakam is in one of those layers without a doubt. And, you know, if you want to have a championship-level team, name the last championship team that didn't have two or three max guys. It doesn't happen. So, um, yeah, that's, I think, my final spiel on that. I will stop coming back to that well of content because <laughs> it makes me tired to talk about. Um, but unless you have any parting shots about Pascal Siakam's season, Big V, I think we can wrap it there. If you uh, do have anything, fire away. But if not, just plug some stuff. Oh, I mean, I guess a couple of things I'll just quickly add to what you said with regards to Pascal you know, in terms of the contract, it's it's a, it's a don't hate the player, hate the game situation, right? Like if yeah. <laughs> if if guys like LeBron and Kawhi, and maybe now you put Luca in that category too, if they got paid what their actual worth was, you know, it'd probably be close to 
uh, you know, something in that 60 to 70 mil range, right? But the cap mm -hmm. doesn't work that way. And so you see them sort of bunched up numerically when they're not. And so that's the situation. It's, it's more that Pascal is getting fair value as opposed to, and LeBron getting unfair value as opposed to the other way around. And, uh, and that's the other thing I'll say as well. You know, when I say neutral to positive, I'm saying neutral is what fair value would be. Positive yeah. would be in excess of that. And so I think yeah. he's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, and I should note, uh, LeBron James, Luka Doncic, both lost in the first round this year. Pascal Siakam has never lost in the first round in his NBA career. Makes mm. me think. Uh, <laughs> uh, that will do it for the Pascal talk today. Big V, anything you want to promote? Just the usual. You can look out for North Courts coming out uh, this week. We will be WNBA and Canada women's basketball focused for this one. So you can check that oh, yeah. out. Other than that, uh, the usual stuff at Complex. Uh, I've got off-season content coming up for the Red Couch Manx contest uh, for the Euros. We'll be talking about that. Uh, and so, yeah, just good, trying to keep the content going leading up to the Olympics. Euros start this week? Where is Euros the time start on Friday, man. I'm very excited. I love the Euros. Um, I've been out of soccer for a lot of this year, but uh, boy, am I ready to throw myself back in. Um yeah, that's uh, all great. Thanks, uh, as always, Big V, for taking the time. We love you, and you're doing a wonderful work. Uh, you can find me, of course, at Woodley Sean. Subscribe to, rate, review, all the good stuff. It's very much appreciated when you support the show. Uh, this week, I will be writing. I'm writing a piece on Pascal Siakam for Raptors HQ at some point this week, so keep an eye out as I review his season over there in written form, in addition to the audio form here. Uh, and, of course, a reminder that we have our Locked On Raptors Draft Lottery Watch Party Tuesday, June 22nd at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Zoom. Uh, it's going to feature me, a bunch of friends of the podcast, Podcast, including Katie Heindel, Kelsey O'Brien, Vivek Jacob might pop in for a little while. Who's to say? I'm going to try to get some draft folks on as well to talk about the uh, the picks that the Raptors might be looking at after the lottery results come in. We're going to hang out. It's going to be like two hours of hanging out. It's going to be awesome. We're going to do Q&A. We're going to do trivia. And we'll do live reaction to the lottery results. Maybe have a couple of pops as well while we watch it all. Um, and we'll, of course, stew in despair if they fall down to like 10th in the draft as well. And so there's all sorts of possibilities. And, of course, the way to get in is to donate to one of two uh, charities that we are raising money for. If you want to donate to both, that's also wonderful. But 25 bucks or more to the Indian Residential School Survivor Society or Islamic Reliefs Palestine Emergency Fund. If you send me the receipt of your donation, I will put you on the list to get into the Zoom call on Draft Lottery Night. It's going to be a ton of fun. We've already raised over $600, which is freaking awesome, and uh, it's very, very exciting. So please send your receipts in. We'd love to have you be part of our lot, uh, draft lottery watch party. It'll be like being at a bar, but uh, you know, safe and all that. Uh, so yeah, please go to my pinned tweet. You'll see all the information there. Just DM me your receipts, and uh, thank you very much in advance for doing that. Uh, that's going to do it. We'll talk to you again on Tuesday as we will continue on in our breakdown of the season. We'll talk Malachi Flynn. And uh, also, I should have a bit of an episode kind of resembling last week's mock lottery draft episode. Uh, this time around, we got the fourth overall pick we did. The the Raptors did, at least. Uh, and I picked Evan Mobley for the Raptors because he fell to four somehow. It was very exciting in the group email chain when I picked up Evan Mobley fourth overall. So I'll get into that. Or at least he'll hear that clip at some point this week on the podcast and some reactions action from our smart draft people over at Locked on NBA Draft, but yeah, that's to look forward to as well as we spend this week rounding out our season from hell in review before turning our attention towards the draft and more uh, lofty off-season expectations and things like that in the weeks to come. 
That'll do it. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you again on Tuesday with another episode of Locked on Raptors. Bye-bye.